I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mm. Yeah, sure is. Oh, that's all we get? Okay. That's all you get today. Sorry. <laughs> How are you? I'm uh, good. How are you? Okay. I went to the dentist on Friday. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I like the dentist. I think she's done good work. <laughs> but on Friday, she, uh, I had, she said I needed a crown replaced. Which wasn't broken or anything. She just said that there was some, uh, like a gap, mm -hmm. which exposes the tooth to decay. So it would be a good idea to replace it. But getting it off was very difficult because it wasn't cracked or anything. So in the process of her trying to get it off, she, like as she was drilling, she slipped and like the drill pierced my tongue. Mm -hmm. So um, I was numb. I didn't feel it. There was blood, a lot of blood, but I didn't see it because I was laying down. But when I got up, she explained to me that um, what she had done, and there was gauze like all over the tray, like filled with blood. Uh, so, you know, as the, the anesthesia wore off, I could tell that my tongue was in pain, or I was in pain. Mm -hmm. So, my mouth hurts right now, Oh, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so you're going to be uh, economical with your words? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I've been talking a lot this weekend anyway, oh. but, uh, I was going to bring up, I posted a meme on Friday. Mm -hmm. Did you see it? The Nicki Minaj one? Uh, about her butt? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I got a couple of comments about it and then, um, it got taken down, not from my account, but because I shared it from another account. I saw Jackie Beat. Jackie Beat. Yeah. And then it was removed off Jackie Beat's account. So then of course it's off of mine. But I just wanted to address that because I thought the comments I received, you know, from, I have family members and people I know who follow me, I don't follow them per se, who don't necessarily take COVID seriously, uh -huh. don't want to get vaccinated. And I think I posted that meme because I thought it was funny, just mm -hmm. this image of Nicki Minaj from like, 20 years ago looking like a human being and then now her butt her butt journey. i mean she looks deformed she looks like howard the duck but that's her business if she wants to look like that i'm good for her but i i think it's funny uh that she just looks so different but then is critical of this vaccine which i can go on and on about but why i posted it was she's not qualified right to talk about public health and safety matters mm -hmm. She doesn't have a master's degree in public health and safety. She doesn't have a medical, you know, she's not a medical doctor or have a PhD in any sort of science related to what she's talking about. So she's just not qualified to talk about it. That's why I posted it. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't want to go on and on Wait, about Wait, what kind of comments were you getting? Just like, you know, we don't know what's in the vaccine or like it's, you know, like it wasn't FDA approved or... Like she, what she did was natural. Like she transferred fat from one part of her body to another. Oh, please. So, and I'm thinking like, natural. I'm thinking like, okay, first of all, that lady underwent elective surgery to augment her appearance, which is fine. I've done it too, but she went under general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like, so I just think it's like, again, I don't want to go on and on, but it's just so frustrating to me. It, 
It's depressing to realize how stupid and selfish people are. Yes. I don't give a rat's ass what people want to do with their bodies. If you do want to get the vaccine or not, it's, it's your decision at this point. So who am I to say you should do it? And I'm not qualified to explain to you why you should do it. I just think it's depressing that people, it's like what people choose to be vigilant about. Oh, uh, yes, I know. Because even like the people I know and the family members, it's like you're obese. You are certainly going to develop type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. and atherosclerosis and hi- hi- hypertension. And, you know, you're sedentary. You drink too much. You smoke. You engage in recreational drug use. You spend too much time in the sun. You're certainly going to get skin cancer. All these things that people seem to have no issue with. But then this one thing is just like, no, I'm not putting that in my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's But funny. all the raw dicks you take, that's fine. Well, it's funny, yes. But again, that it's in the same way that religion works is the way that people uh, take in information. Pick and choose. Pick and choose. What they, and it's just not... It, it just shows a lack of... Education. Education. <laughs> and I don't mean a formal degree. I just mean the ability to, like, seek out the truth. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's, it's frustrating. And, 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 and make sense of it all. Like, if... If if an individual makes a well well informed decision, I have no choice but to respect that. But people are making well informed decisions. Well, and I don't mean just I don't mean just COVID. I mean in general. Like there are a range of things in this world that are detrimental to people's long term health, and people just don't give a rat's ass. Well, so why are we surprised that people don't want to do what makes sense today? I'm not surprised. And what's upsetting about Nicki Minaj, I think, is you know for the platform she has, how irresponsible it is to just talk bullshit but you know it's like when she was going on about wanting to be number one about one of her last uh albums and talking about how harriet tubman was she's like harriet tubman out there eating that rice and it's like well (laughs) you know she's just she's just obviously doesn't care about sounding educated about what she speaks about i just want to really if, if i had a message i could share with everyone it's like be careful who you listen to. Mm-hmm. Like, don't take advice from people aren't who aren't qualified to give that advice. <laughs> Nicki Minaj is qualified to give advice on rap and how to spend money. There you go. That's it. Mm-hmm. I'm qualified to talk about hair. I have a license to do so. Mm-hmm. So that's the advice that I should be giving, right? So it's just like... In the same way that I wouldn't take fitness and nutrition tips from a fat bitch, and I wouldn't take relationship advice from someone who can't find or keep a man, I'm not going to listen to someone with no medical or science expertise about my health. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's your health. Like, you need to make decisions that are best for you. Stop listening to people who don't know what they're talking about. It's just so frustrating. And then to stand up for, like, you don't like something I posted or you want to argue about it don't like <laughs> don't argue with me mm-hmm. I'm not giving you advice I'm just posting shit because I think it's funny and ridiculous and it's like you want to put energy into that but like not your own health and it's not just COVID like I said people are losing at life in many ways oh yeah yeah but then it's I have a nice life it's funny. so I'm not pressed it's just like I see other people Yes, but it's funny, the uh, the uh, alliances, something like her statement attracts, because I saw like Rose McGowan coming out and defending her. It's like, do you really want to be... Uh, not that I disagree with a lot of the things that Rose McGowan does stand up for, but uh, 
to also to be taken with a grain of salt in some ways. But I'm not brainwashed. I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. But really, my ultimate message that I think we like we could all benefit from when we think about a lot of things in life is risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a 42 year old person with no underlying health conditions. I'm in moderate shape. I do exercise. I eat okay. So am I super scared that if I were to get COVID, I would die? No, but I think I am trying to follow expert advice. I did get vaccinated. I do wear a mask when I'm in public for the most part, I do go places where vaccines are required to enter and I don't wear a mask. So I'm I'm doing a risk assessment. Mm-hmm. And I'm comfortable with that. But it's like, not every... Like, oh my God. Like, people in Vegas complaining... Like, because I know so many people in Vegas, the rhetoric for this past year and a half has been like, the economy, like, we can't... You know, we can't keep doing this because the economy... You think a virus cares about the economy? No. Just because you're tired of something does, does, like, doesn't mean eventually it goes away. You have to take action. You know, just like how people have shitty credit because they want to ignore it. It doesn't go away. It just doesn't go away. Just because you're tired of wearing a mask or you're tired of not being able to go to Disneyland or whatever, that doesn't mean that all of this is going to go away. We have to take action. We have to do something. Well, I think part of that action is... You just will have to, you should have to be vaccinated to go to any of these public places. But I want to get off that topic. I just want to say that I, I'm not here to tell people what to do. I'm not qualified to tell any, I'm not qualified to give any advice except to say how people look bad. Okay. That's the only thing I'm an expert on is okay. people looking ugly. Like that's it and how to look better. So anyway, uh, moving on, we watched the finale of Drag Race Holland. Uh-huh. Uh, Vanessa Van Cartier won. Yeah. Which, so, another, yeah. so a trans woman won All Star Six last month, mm-hmm. and then this month a trans woman won Drag Race Holland. I was happy with her winning. I was too. She, she was, you know, it's only ten contestants, so the season is small. But there were moments when I thought she underwhelmed. Yeah. But she really did kick ass in the finale. I agree. Yeah. After watching the finale, it's like, oh yeah, I, yeah. she deserves it. Yeah, I felt good about her winning, and I think that platform would be better. You used in her hands than the other two. I agree. So I was happy with it. She looked amazing in that gold mm-hmm. finale look. So good for her. And then we started Drag Race UK episode one. Yeah. I was pleased. Mm-hmm. My only feedback is the lighting and the camera angles on the judges panel, particularly Rue, RuPaul, looked a little crazy. So I don't know if as Rue ages, we're going to get more sort of like inventive with how she's presented. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> Which is fine. She looks amazing. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it was a little jarring. Uh, okay. The White Lotus. Yes. So when we started reviewing Nine Perfect Strangers, we got so many comments like, why didn't you review The White Lotus? It's so much better. Which I thought was funny because it's like, how would I know? <laughs> how would I know? I haven't seen either. So how would I know? But um, we did complete The White Lotus. And I wanted to bring that up because someone brought up in the comments, the first purge and what our thoughts were. Uh, the forever purge. The forever purge and what our thoughts were on that the, the white main character and his comments on how like we would all be better off. Like he's not racist, but he thinks like we would be better off like not mixing. Like, like sometimes se- segregation makes things easier, which we can talk about that, I guess. That, 
it's not that I wanted to talk about that question, but it made me think about the White Lotus. And I don't want to do a recap of the White Lotus because I'm not prepared to do so. But I did think it made it, it related to Connie Britton's character and her family. Oh, yeah, yeah. And how the dad talked about and even she talks about how the cis white male is under attack. And yeah. we, we need to be sensitive to the brother because of that. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't think that's unreasonable. I can see how some cis white men feel like they're under attack because they don't feel like they're part of the problem. And I can appreciate, and I've said this for as long as I can remember, I can appreciate white people being mad like, well, because they they're like I'm not racist. I didn't own slaves, and obviously, it's bigger than you not owning slaves as being part of the problem because you're not part of the solution. But you can go ahead. So, do you want to say something about that? Well, I just think that uh, <laughs> I think that that viewpoint. Well, is there are a lot of problems with it? And it's lazy, but. Uh, uh, I think we see a lot of that because white people never were forced resiliency or taught, you know, that it, it's that sentiment of like, oh, you just show up, you're a winner. And now, now we're told that we have to feel responsible or uh, ha take a stance on anti-racism, for instance. And I was never responsible for that in the first place. So I just washed my hands of it. And it, it's that very selfish viewpoint still of really only caring about oneself. And segregation doesn't work. You know, that that's why we had segregation-era America. Uh, clearly, that does not work. Just because you are uncomfortable with dealing with uh, something that doesn't pertain to you doesn't mean that you can just live in a bubble. Like, that, I that, agree. That's, that's not the answer. Like, we, uh, we grow when we're uncomfortable. We learn from others when we're uh, uncomfortable. We learn about ourselves. And, you know, we, all, you're, all you're doing is crippling yourself. I think I agree, but I also can appreciate how some people feel like they're under attack. But it's like, you know, again, fragile spirits. It's like you don't want to get yelled at or be thrown in the heat of a moment, but it's like, well, buck up, deal with it. Like this this is a problem that you are a part of and you are on sure. If you're a white person, you know, you are on the privileged side of it. So, let's get past that hump and be grown. Well, we can move on to the White Lotus itself. So, yes, I agree, based on all the comments we received, that it is better than Nine Perfect Strangers. Oh, by far. It's significantly more engaging mm -hmm. and fun. But just some... I don't have any notes, but my immediate thoughts were Jennifer Coolidge was the best part. Yeah, she And I do good. think she deserved her Emmy. Mm -hmm. The daughter... Of Connie Britton's character. Sydney. Oh, I hated that girl. Yeah. I wanted a shark to just I wanted a shark to like bite off her appendages, but then she's still alive so she could suffer. That's how much I hated that girl. And I also hated the rich Molly Shannon son, Jake, what's his name? Um, I he was very unlikable, but I felt like it was very accurate for like a spoiled rich guy who doesn't see that he's like the problem, which but in his relationship, I liked him so much in that Jenny Slate movie, uh, Obvious Child. Oh, I'm sure that you know. Like, I mean, the, that actor seems like he's a great person. I'm sure, but yeah, that character was, was trash. Um, Molly Shannon was frustrating, but she did a very good job. Well, she's worked with Mike White before in the Year of the Dog. So, the general manager played by, or the hotel manager played by, oh, the guy from Looking. From Looking, uh, uh, he like. <laughs> I'm trying to remember his name. 
You know, I used to, I spent four years working in a hotel casino in Las Vegas, and I think it really does capture like how ridiculous Murray these, Bartlett, Murray, mm-hmm. uh, just how ridiculous these um, guests are. And I think, oh, and you know, at one point, I think halfway through the series, I talked, I, I kind of got riled up because it it really triggered me as to like just working in a hotel casino, then doing hair. And how people really do impose on service workers. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Jennifer Coolidge, we really see that. It's oh, like, yeah. Jesus, like you for you're paying me to do a specific thing for you, and then you burden me with all your bullshit. It it's hard. It's hard to work all day dealing with that, and then you have to come home and decompress, and then people don't even want to tip you or don't want to treat you like a human being. So I, I think the series did a good job of um, demonstrating that. The overall storyline, I felt, uh, I could see this being like a a series that continues like every season. Maybe it's a different set of I guests. I think that's what they're planning on doing. Or... Every season is like a, a different, different hotel. Place. I think that's that's what I've read. There's yes. So I so I would be very interested in that. I, I think that could be a lot of fun. But the first season, I felt like overall, not a lot was happening. I feel like they didn't really push a lot. I feel like it could have gone further. It could have gone further. Um, but it, and the finale, to me, felt underwhelming only because I wanted some, you know, and, and maybe this is more realistic then that I wanted a grand catharsis that I don't feel for anyone. I don't even recall who died. Murray. Oh, that's right. See, I mean, it, it nothing really hit... Ar- Armand, his character, rather. Yeah, nothing really hit me. I mean, the, the first thing that pops into my head is him shitting in old boy's luggage. And, but even that felt like, oh, this is the the limited extent of your vengeance on this person. Is Oh, and you know, then that one girl setting up the employee to rob... Connie Britton's character of her bracelets. That was a very tense episode. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I was entertained. And a lot of things to mind there. But yeah. I, I think that the best moment really is when Jennifer Coolidge, who has always been uh, very forthcoming about her limitations as a human, um, but still imposes herself anyway, uh, goes to Natasha Rothwell, her Belinda, and gives her that money and is like, look... Yeah, that was a very good scene, I thought. Um, I I did want to know how much she gave Belinda. Sure. But, but, but we never But I think it. the gesture is such that I was using you to fulfill my own kind of toxic... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that compu- was well Compulsions, done. but... Uh, and, I, and I decided I don't want to do that, but I know that I kind of led you on, so here's the payment for the emotional turmoil. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so moving on to movies that were watched that were not reviewed there are a lot of them <laughs> so well uh, um maybe we should well let's like let's fi- just start films that were released this week that we didn't make time for that we should have reviewed i i just have a long list of movies so we can start with bound okay well i don't know where do you want to start i want to start with what i just said so well i don't know you like there i have so many here so tell, tell me which one you want to start with. Well, Birds of Paradise, okay. which we had planned on reviewing, we didn't make time for. What is that about? The ballet school in Paris. Okay, go ahead. Suspiria, Black Swan, uh, you know, reminiscent of a lot of other stories. But, uh, and I was very interested in it because of Jacqueline Bissett. Uh, but overall, it's a B movie, but interesting. And I think that you would have enjoyed it okay. well enough. Next. 
Uh, I really wanted you to say that you would be interested in watching I'm Your Man, uh, which played at Berlin earlier this year, uh, directed by Maria Schrader, where Maren Eggert plays this scientist who, for funding on her own project, agrees to be um, agrees to be part of this, like, love... Uh, she agrees to basically take a robot in her house, played by Dan Stevens, to act as her love interest and then provide feedback, but then actually kind of starts falling for him. Oh. Which I think you really would have liked. But, okay. Uh, and... Uh, I'm fine. We skipped The Starling, directed by Theodore Melfi of Hidden Figures and St. Vincent, uh, with Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd as parents who have a child who's died of SIDS, and he goes off to basically nurse his wounds in a sanitarium, and she is a grocery store worker who bonds with a violent starling in her garden. Mm. <laughs> it was not, it's so corny. It played at TIFF, which is how I saw it, and I really didn't like it. It is schmaltzy with a capital S. Um, but yeah, we didn't get to that. And also Antoine Fuqua's The Guilty, which is a remake of, I believe, a Danish film with Jake Gyllenhaal playing a bad cop slash white knight 911 phone call operator. Got a theatrical release this week. I believe Netflix releases it next week. But I also really didn't care for that. It's a lot of Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. Although it's better than that Antoine Fuqua movie he just did with Mark Wahlberg. Oh. What was that? On Paramount Plus, um, in, not Infinity. Infinite. Infinite, yeah, that was, that's just straight up garbage, but. Next. Um, those are all the releases for this week. Oh, well, I'll talk about one. So someone commented um, that uh, we should review a movie called Prey. Which so, is German. Well, yes, but, so, you know, people were. Uh, comments about us watching a lot of things and there's just no time to like to do like we couldn't possibly but you know depending on you know when I'm looking at my phone and when I see a comment and if I'm sitting on the toilet uh, you know I had a moment so I thought oh let me look up the trailer for Prey so I go to YouTube and type in Prey trailer and I watch the trailer Mm -hmm. for the wrong movie so the movie I watched the trailer for is a 2019 film and it's about these like this younger woman and man who, like, like the man gets trapped on an island, like, his boat capsizes or something, and then they're being, like, stalked. So that looked, like, corny, corny fun. So I thought, oh, great. I'll, like, I'll watch it. So one day last week while I was working, I had it on in the background. And, but then I realized, like, oh, it was the wrong movie. So then I watched this 2021 German film on Netflix and I have to say, I, I it wasn't as fun. Okay. The story's very basic. It's about these five guys who are out, like, hiking and, like, kayaking or riverboating, whatever. So, and it's these five, like, straight dudes, two of whom are brothers. And when they make their way back to their very nice Audi SUV or Mercedes, I can't recall at, the, at this moment, to go back home, they hear a gunshot. And one of them gets shot. And very quickly, we realize they're being hunted. Oh, that's what you're watching when I came yes. home. Yes. Yeah. And to wrap it up, we find out the person hunting them is a woman who sometime prior was out in that same area with her young daughter. And a hunter accidentally shoots the daughter. Because he's kind of harassing them. Like harassing the mom because she's pretty. And she's like, get away from me. And the guy like accidentally shoots his gun and kills the daughter. So now this mom is out here in these woods, I guess, killing all hunters. 
Yeah. Uh, I thought the basic premise uh, was too thin to carry like a feature length film because they fill a lot of it in with the contention between the five guys because they're kind of dicks to each other. Which sounds a lot and like then, a film by was starring Rafe Spall recently as well. Well, then we find out that like the two brothers, one cheated on the other, like one had an affair with the other's lady. So, you know, and then of course this woman kills off all of like almost she kills off all of them but one and then in the end she kills herself. Like she jumps off a cliff and dies. So, yeah, I was I was underwhelmed by the story, but I thought I would bring it up because I did watch it. <laughs> I'm also underwhelmed by the title. I'm so I'm also very tired of all these releases that have these generic titles that several other films have titles yeah, for. Yeah, you don't like that. It's tired. But we can move on. We watched Bound. Yeah, cuz uh, I think we were in the mood for a heist film and I I suggested that because I love it and I had never seen it I obviously know about it um from like when I was in college and going to you know Hollywood video and they mm -hmm. would have it like in the gay section but you know lesbian shit usually doesn't pique my interest as quickly I know and I, I've had over the years I've had trouble getting other gay men to watch lesbian related films but I have to say Bound is fun oh yeah and I think there are you know, Jennifer Tilly is quite, I think by nature, kind of camp because of yeah. her voice. But there are moments in Bound that are quite thrilling. Mm -hmm. Particularly the scene, which I thought was very well done. It's basically Jennifer Tilly, she's dating a gangster who has like $2 million in his house. And she comes up with a scheme to steal that money mm -hmm. with like the neighbor lady, uh, Gina Gershon. Gina Gershon. Corky. Uh, like, they're going to steal this money and then uh, go off together as lovers. But anyway, the scene where Gina Gershon is explaining how they're going to execute the heist. So then we see it. And as the audience, I'm like, oh, okay. It was very good, like, watching what we think is going to happen. And then we find out it did happen. Mm -hmm. So as she's explaining the details of the heist to the audience, it's happening. So, so they are successful. But then the aftermath of them taking the money and actually getting out of the apartment building is like the second half of the film, mm -hmm. which I thought was also very well done. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I would probably watch it again. Oh, yeah. No, I've seen this film several times. Uh, I think Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly are really sexy uh, and a lot of fun to watch. Uh, you know, this was the first film directed by the Wachowski siblings who would go on to do The Matrix, which Joe Pantoliano also uh, was part of. Uh, I also really enjoyed John P. Ryan in this. Who's, who's he? He's the, he's the older gentleman. For, he's, he was in the movie It's Alive, the Larry Cohen horror film. But he's the one that really likes Jennifer Tilly, who really likes Violet. Oh, sure. And kind of, she, she, that's who she finesses to get away. Yeah. Um, um, let's move on to... Oh, and Christopher Maloney, of course, yeah. is in it. Uh, sweet, sweet backs, ba uh, sweet... Say the title, Sweet... Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song. Yeah, Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song. Okay, Melvin Van Peebles, who yep. we'll talk about. Peebles. Peebles, sorry. <laughs> um, he, well, do you want to bring this up? Because you watch more than one of his films. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so... Well, let's talk... Well, here. We're going to get to the obituary section, but we have to bring up Melvin Van Peebles. He passed this past week. Yeah. And then coincidentally, you received... The day that he died, I received the... the box set. The box sets. Melvin Van Peebles, the 
essential films from Criterion for review. Which was weird. But I remember I opened the mail and I'm like, look! And that's not the only serendipitous package we received last week. We'll get to it. Okay. Because the film we're talking about today. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But... So that was odd that the day he passed, you received this Criterion box. Set. But I was very excited to get it. I'm like, oh, we, I can't wait to watch these. Previously, together, we've only watched Watermelon Man. So, which I feel like Watermelon Man is a movie that we need to make a video about because right. it is so good. It but is. you watched two films from the collection already. Sweet, Sweet Back's Bad. Uh... I've watched the entire collection. Oh. Um, but together we watched Sweet Sweet Backs. And, you know, it's one of those films I had never seen because uh, it, it's I'm aware of its importance and it's something that, it, that needs to feel like more of an event that you're doing. Okay, well, I also tried to watch it. And I will just say that the opening scene I found very disturbing. It is. And, and for some reason, it really turned me off to the film. So then I kind of like, my attention waned. Sure. And I don't even... I, I was present for the entire You film, were, yeah. But I don't remember any of it, really. Okay. I, I was really turned off. So I'll let you talk about it, but the opening scene is Sweetback is the character played by Melvin Van Peebles, but the film opens with him as a 13-year-old boy. Played by his son, Mario. Played by his son, Mario, who lives in, like, a brothel. Mm -hmm. So we see him cleaning up in this whorehouse, and one of the prostitutes seduced, like... Well, you can't say she seduced him. Like she, she rapes him. She rapes him. Like this adult prostitute female, uh, like rapes and molests this teen, young teenage boy, and we see it. And I was very uncomfortable because we see this like nude boy, and we see him on top of this nude woman. Like there's no special effects. They're really doing this thing, and I was just really bothered by that. It is. It is. But if you think about, you know, this is seventy one, but people, I think that. Uh, you know, white America dismissed this film already anyway. But, you know, if you think about the controversy of Louis Malle's um, Pretty Baby with Brooke Shields as the childhood prostitute, which everybody was disturbed by. To me, this was, it. this does play well, as more disturbing. I'm not, like, I'm not disturbed by things that actually happen. I understand that children are put in these circumstances. I just, like, actually seeing it, like, actually seeing this boy nude simulating sex on top of this adult woman who's also nude just really bothered me and uh but you can go ahead and keep talking about well it. no I, I think it's a fascinating film but it's it's clearly um a, an example of guerrilla filmmaking because he did what he could uh, with very limited uh resources and i think that's obviously clear uh but of course uh, i think he's a striking film presence and you know the notion of this sex worker that becomes the leader of the uh, revolution uh, is is fascinating, and I think that he does a lot of very unique things. He does a lot of controversial, powerful things. Uh, yeah, there's a lot about gender and sexuality in it. In, that, uh, interracial relationships that that seems quite provocative for 1971. I think some, yeah, and but even the way that some people still think it sure is a sure. provocation. Um, so I, I hope that we go into more in a review of the film. But it, I had that night we watched it. I had one of the probably the best uh, double features I've ever treated myself to because immediately afterwards I watched Mario Van Peebles' 2003 film Badass in which he plays his father Melvin in the making of this film uh, which I thought was a really loving homage. I, th I felt that was a really emotional film and I think if you see it you'll, you'll probably have an even greater appreciation for Sweet Sweetbacks. Okay. What uh, I'm lost on my list is the next thing we're going to talk about Skin Deep? No. I'll, oh. Let me finish with Melvin. Um, oh. The next thing... So I'd never seen his first film, 
if you read about Melvin Van Peebles, he is fascinating. Um, because, of course, Hollywood was not open to a, a black filmmaker uh, in the 60s. So he moved his family to Amsterdam, and he ended up making... Uh, he wrote... He taught him... And he, his first film was... Uh, a French film, ostensibly, the story of a three-day pass uh, about a black soldier that falls in love with a, a French white woman, uh, but is a very insular uh, film. But he taught himself French, wrote a, a novel in French, took, a, it took a advantage of a law in France that if you you will get funding if you're adapting your own written material. So he actually wrote a treatment for the story of a three-day pass. Then the, the, the book itself is written after oh. the film. And then uh, because that movie came to uh, premiere in the U.S. at the San Francisco Film Festival, that is when he attracted the attention, finally, of the Hollywood studios and how he came to do a second film, Watermelon Man, with Columbia, his only studio film. And notably, he walked away uh, from a three-picture Columbia deal to do Sweet Sweetbacks. Uh, but anyway, Story of a Three-Day Pass is really uh, inspired by French New Wave filmmakers. It's a beautiful-looking film. Um, there's some great insert essays in the collection. Uh, but if I, we could do a podcast all of its own talking about how much more authentic this is than something like Stanley Kramer's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was the same year. Because this is, the, this is 1967, uh, and that's the year where interracial marriage finally became legal in the U.S. Anyhow, uh, and then the other film to talk about briefly is Don't Play Us Cheap, which is a film version of his Broadway musical uh, starring Esther Roll and Avon Long oh. and uh, Mabel King, who you know as Eveline. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, fascinating. In each of the four films in the set really do have a, a unique feel to them. And and um, Don't Play as Cheap, I think you'd really like, because it's about two of Satan's imps, uh, who are bats, uh, basically, that are sent to this party in Harlem, to, in Harlem to destroy the party. And it's kind of about, I guess, how Black Joy overcomes that. Uh, but these two, like, vamp- these emissaries of Satan show up at this party being thrown by Esther Bull uh, and one of them falls in love with her daughter uh, Ernestine uh, and the other one Esther Roll kind of has a fancy for but he runs away from her anyhow uh, very interesting fascinating wow person and filmmaker yeah Melvin Van Peebles seems like Peebles seems like a fascinating creative but yeah just highly can't recommend enough okay so then moving on to Skin Deep Oh, God. You were there. It's... Uh, what was that? Was I? Yeah, Severin uh, put it out. Uh, it's Let a, me see a picture. A two- oh, with the brain. Yes. So it's Gabriel Bartalos directed it. It's 2003. And I was interested because he was a special effects artist on brain damage and even Matthew Barney's Cream Master Cycle, which, you know, if you've seen those films, the, the visual effects are stunning. Um, but he directed this film called Skin Deep, which is such a Texas Chainsaw Massacre ripoff. That's right. That's right. Yes, I did watch. Something. I found it really painful uh, getting through that. Um, well, because some of the acting is, I mean, there were choices made. <laughs> the, the choices are, yeah, and, and it's clear that it's not trying to be that. It's also, even with the the Brain Man, I think trying to be kind of David Lynchian almost in like you know early Lynch, like a racer head. Then there's Death Screams. Uh, Arrow Video put that out. Again, another early 80s horror film that is so cheap it was hard to watch, even in this restoration. And even though it stars some porn star, 
she's not Marilyn Chambers in David Cronenberg's Rabid. Uh, in fact, I was watching that. I kept forgetting, like, who's the adult film actress that's making this notable for a film? Anyway. Uh, deep cover? Oh, deep cover. So, Criterion, and we'll get to this more later. Uh, obviously, I love reviewing and watching Criterion films. You know, the, the loving uh, work that goes into the restorations and kind of the importance of keeping... Uh, you know, the notion of a literary canon for queer and black filmmakers has always been extremely lacking. Uh, So it's, you can tell that they are making an effort to uh, kind of restore that erasure by getting all these, they're they're finally getting more black filmmakers into the fold. And I couldn't have been more happy to experience Deep Cover for the first time, uh, directed by Bill Duke, starring Larry Fishburne. Bill, 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 Bill Duke? Bill Duke. The Bill Duke. The Bill Duke. Oh. He's directed a handful of films. I didn't know that. You didn't know? Okay. This is his first, interesting enough, uh, his, I think his debut is uh, an adaptation of a Chester Himes novel who wrote Cotton Goes to Harlem, which Ossie Davis uh, adapted, which I also watched this week. Uh, But Deep Cover is kind of a L.A. neo-noir starring, it's the last time Larry Fishburne was Credited as Larry Fishburne, uh, and also starring Jeff Goldblum. Uh, he's, as the title suggests, is an undercover cop trying to infiltrate this drug ring. It is a little rougher on the edges. It is beautifully shot, and I forgot how handsome Lawrence Fishburne was at one point. <laughs> Shade. Um, and then I got the hookup. That was trash. That was... That I had hope for You know the, I do like me some John Witherspoon and some Cheryl Underwood. They're the only good parts of this movie. And then I do like Master P. Master P is not charismatic but as, he's, a, yeah, as a lead. He, no, he's not. Um, Anthony Johnson has a little more luck in this um, than Master P does. The first, like, 20 minutes, I'm, I was hopeful for it picking up, but it, it doesn't. It's It's really you know, what would be called an urban comedy today, but it is so silly and stupid and... Oh. Uh, but Cheryl Underwood is funny, and so is John Witherspoon. So, projects of interest? I just had one. Um, Maldoror? Yeah, uh, Fabrice Duwells, hot off his premiere of Inexorable at the Toronto International Film Festival, has already re- announced another project um, that's based on the real-life case of a pedophile serial killer from Belgium in the 90s, I believe, and he's reuniting with Benoit Poulvourde, who he's now worked with twice before in um, Inexorable, and uh, the last film he did before that, which I'm blanking on the title. All right, moving on to the obituary section. Yeah, a lot of people died. Several, many people. Uh, we already we already talked about Melvin Van Peebles. Mm-hmm. He gone. Uh, you just mentioned Anthony Johnson, who most people, well, I probably should have looked up his biggest credit. To me, I would assume his biggest credit is Friday. Friday, but he's also in House Party, right? Is he? I thought so. Okay. Um, Willie Garson, mm-hmm. the guy from Sex and the City. I, I'm not super familiar with Sex and the City. I, I wasn't one of those gays who watched it when Same. it was on. But um, he gone. I know Sarah Jessica Parker is a... Uh, she, she was devastated, she said. Oh. I, I've only seen the two films. Actually, I've never watched the series. I've watched some of them, but um, I, I know he played a gay person. Yeah. That's all I know. And then Sarah Dash from LaBelle. Yeah. She passed. I was a big LaBelle fan, but I discovered LaBelle like in college because I always liked Patti LaBelle. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going to a used CD store on this, like right next to the college and I would go there all the time and buy you CDs. And I remember seeing um, 
like a greatest hits collection from LaBelle. So I don't even think I realized that there were three people. Yeah, yeah. I always just thought it was probably LaBelle who sang Lady Marmalade. Um, but, and I still, on my, um, my iPhone, I have that CD like downloaded onto it. Um, but yeah, they, LaBelle and the Bluebells, they have quite a few um, great songs. She was 76. Yeah, which, you know, in the scheme of things, really isn't that old, but... No, but she, I mean, what a life. Yeah. What a life. I and she seemed like a really sweet lady, like just her, you know, people's faces just look like, mm -hmm. like, like they'd be sweet. I, that's what I think of when I think of, I can picture her face and I always thought she would be a very nice lady. Um, we've been talking a lot, so we only have like 20 minutes left. Let's talk about your selection. So another interesting uh, coincidence was, this was my week to choose a film. Mm-hmm. So I had, in my mind, had chosen it. And then the next day, you receive a package from Criterion. Mm -hmm. And it's the film Love and Basketball. Yeah. And that was the film I was going to show you. Okay. So don't ask me why I was thinking of that. Yeah, I don't know. Because you haven't seen it either. No, but I was thinking, oh, what are some like urban classics? Or, you know, just like black films that everyone would talk about when I was a little younger that like I haven't seen. And uh, it was either Love Jones or Love and Basketball. Okay. And then I thought, oh, let's do Love and Basketball. Not knowing who's in it, <laughs> I just know that movie. Mm -hmm. And then here you are with the Blu-ray Criterion. So, so no we watched it. Notably the first black American woman to have a Criterion film in the collection. Because uh, Yuzan Palsy's A Dry White Season, uh, she's, she's from Martinique. Uh, but she's notably the first black woman to direct a st Hollywood studio film that got theatrical distribution, which has Marlon Brando in it, darling. Uh, that, that's part of Criterion already, but this is the first American, African-American woman. So, Love and Basketball, directed by... Gina Prince Bythewood. In 2000. In 2000. Okay, yeah. the basic story is, it revolves around uh, the characters Monica and Quincy. Mm -hmm. Monica's played by Sanaa Lathan, mm -hmm. who bid Beyonce, and Omar Epps, who's yeah. married to Keisha from Total. Mm -hmm. All right, so <laughs> they we see them in the early 80s as kids. They live in Los Angeles in a very nice area. Um, think like Ladera Heights or Baldwin mm -hmm. Hills. And... Quincy's dad plays for the LA Clippers, so they have money. They live in a beautiful home, and their next door neighbor and his dad's Dennis Haysbert. His dad is Dennis, and Haysbert. mom is Debbie Morgan. Debbie Morgan, and Monica, her dad is a like a like a successful banker. It would appear that he's like a bank president or something. Played by Harry Lennox. So, you know these like beautiful black people with beautiful lives living in LA, and they meet as kids. And they become quick friends. Initially, they are like, he, uh, uh, Quincy asks Monica, like, do you want to be my girl? But it, she's like a tomboy and she doesn't want to be told what to do, which we can get into because I think she's influenced by her mother's behavior. Mm -hmm. But uh, they end up not being romantic at the age of 11. <laughs> so they just end up being friends. And then we flash forward to like, what, seven or six years later? 88. 88. Yeah, seven years later, they're in high school and they're both playing basketball. They're both very good. They're both attempting to get recruited to USC. Mm -hmm. And they are. Uh, sort of the back and forth is that Quincy's dad really wants him to get an education first, but Quincy just wants to be drafted to the NBA. And he is. And he chooses to drop out of school. 
he does that because his dad cheats on his mom, and we'll get more into that. And then Monica, her and Quincy in college decide to like get together. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, before they go to college, yeah. like at the night of their prom yeah. in high school. So they end up breaking up because Quincy feels like Monica's not supportive supportive of him during his time of pain when he finds out his dad cheated on his mom. So they break up. Then we flash forward again five years. And Monica's playing professional basketball like overseas. Barcelona. Barcelona. And Quincy's playing for the Lakers. Mm -hmm. Quincy tears his ACL so he can no longer play. Monica comes to visit him and she's she's decided to quit basketball because she doesn't love it anymore. But we find out Quincy's engaged to a woman named Kyra, played by Tyra Banks. Uh But the end of the film is... Monica realizes that the reason she doesn't love basketball is because he's not a part of her life and her life. And which, you know, we can get into that. I thought it was a little crunchy, but, um, she says, well, let's play for it. She's like, I'll play for your heart. I'll play for your heart. A one-on-one basketball game. And they play and she loses, but then he says double or nothing, which is meant to imply like, I'm I'm not going to marry Kyra. Yeah. And then we flash forward again a couple years and we see that they're together. They have a kid and she's playing ball. And she's playing professional basketball yeah. in the United States. Yeah. All right. Overall, there are many aspects of the <clears throat> story and about the film itself that I really really liked. Mhm. So I think it's a very good movie. I really liked it, yeah. Yes. Uh, should I just go through my notes quickly and then you can add on to them? Sure. We have 15 minutes. Okay. okay. I really like the music. Oh yeah, the soundtrack's great. Yeah. The soundtrack is excellent. Uh, the one, like in the beginning of the film, when little Quincy tells little Monica, "You want to be my girl," and she goes, "What I gotta do?" <laughs> and he's like, "Well, we can uh, play basketball together. We can walk each other to school, and you have to kiss me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they kiss, but then things fall apart very when, quickly because he says, "Well, you need to ride on my bike." Mm-hmm. That's what boyfriend and girlfriend do my dad drives my mom everywhere and she's like i don't need you to take me anywhere and he gets mad Mm -hmm. so they start fighting (laughs) so it's very clear monica is a very independent young person um i thought it was funny because how many movies have we seen like where there are high school dances Mm -hmm. and these kids don't know how to dance and usually it's like, what song are they dancing to? Because it's not the song that's playing right now. Right. So I think it's funny. It's so rare that we see a, a, a movie where we're watching kids dance who can actually dance. Mm-hmm. And it matches the music. And I'm not going to say that it's because they're black. But this was Crenshaw High School. So, <laughs> so I thought that was fun. Um, something I didn't... Probably the... Okay, there are two things that I think didn't work for me. Um, a minor thing is... There is a plot point of Monica at USC playing basketball. And then we have these other players, the other female players. And it would appear that those actors are actually basketball players. Probably. So their acting is not the best. Sure. So but they're, but they're, it's so peripheral. Well, but it's enough that it had an impact. Like, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. But the bigger thing is, or the biggest thing, is I don't know that... Monica and Quincy have any chemistry. I think they worked better as friends. But to see them... I This is what I wrote down. It was creepy seeing them being sexual for the first time. Because they really seemed like 
It seemed incestuous. Yeah, yeah. I they do. have more chemistry as friends, and an example of that is, you know, we see them having sex, and that was cringy to me. But then after Quincy finds out his dad cheated on his mom, he goes and talks to Monica about his feelings, and then that felt so real to me. Right, but they understand, I think they are attracted to each other, but there's an intimacy that they share in a bond and a passion for something that's rare, too. But, you know, for as experienced as I am, I don't have any experience being a teenager and having any sort of romantic relationships. So maybe it just seems weird to me because I have never well, experienced that. I think it's I think it's really well written because we're both made to understand their backgrounds they come from and the, the uh, behaviors of their parents that have kind of influencing how they're approaching one another and how they're resisting one another. Sure. Like yes. her, her with her mother and him with his father. And I think that their initial talk as children about being boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, they, they have this playful competition with one another, but there's this ownership thing going on. Plus, keep in mind, you know, we're talking about black women in sports and filmmaking and kind of the, this omnipresent feeling of invisibility. Sure. Uh, and having to prove herself, which also really ties into um, uh, her char- Monica's characterization. Yeah. And, and and I think why there's kind of a lack of chemistry because she is so set on she's so set on this one goal, this one passion. I agree. I think so the character feels very flat, but it's on purpose because like you said, she has this sort of singular um vision or goal in sight, which is basketball. But I think where it kind of lost me, and again, maybe it's just me because A, again, don't have a lot of romantic experience as a, or any as a teenager. Also, I don't like basketball. Which is probably why I avoided this. I mean, this came out when I was in 10th grade, but it's like, oh, sports movie, not going to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, I agree. But she does seem very flat. So, she, you know, she doesn't exude a lot of emotion. So then when she is sort of showing romantic interest in Quincy, it just feels kind of like, okay. But I, I think you explained it well. Um, again, really liked seeing, like, black people doing well. Oftentimes I avoid black film because I don't want to be triggered. Like some bullshit's going to happen. Reality's going to happen. Yeah. So sometimes it's nice to be able to watch a film and know that I can like exhale and that there, it's just going to be a story about black people amongst themselves Mm -hmm. without all the exterior craziness. Yeah. So I did appreciate that about this film and seeing black people doing well. I really liked Quincy's dad's emphasis on education. Like, he really wants his son to take advantage of his educational opportunities and not end up like him, albeit a successful NBA player, but feeling like he's limited. So I, I did like that. Um, I, I mean, even in all the peripheral details, it's you had somebody at a game reading Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, or when she's in Barcelona, she's watching Family Matters in Spanish. I wrote that and down. I, I thought that was cute that she's watching cute, Family yeah. Matters in Spanish. Um, I will say, though, that... Uh, you know, the the plot point that sort of causes Monica and Quincy's relationship in college to deteriorate is Quincy losing his trust in his father. Mm-hmm. So now he sees women as like, his perception of women has changed and he just drops Monica. Mm-hmm. So they don't see each other for five years. And in then, fact, he just starts sleeping with some other girl while he's with her. Played yeah. by Monica Calhoun. Yeah, he just like starts seeing another woman because he's mad that she wasn't there for him when he needed her. You know, again, I think that 
for the purposes of the story, it made sense. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was well done. Something that the film does uh, that I thought was interesting is it's broken up into, like, like quarters. quarters, like a basketball game. And then not just with a title card, but also with um, scenes of Magic Johnson throughout mm-hmm. his career. So, like, when he was, like, I guess, I don't know, like, he first won whatever you call it when you win an NBA championship, mm-hmm. whatever that game's called. And then, like, when he... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And then also, like, when he gets drafted, maybe? I don't know. And then also when he announces he has HIV. And yeah. So that was interesting because we use this char- the, this um, historical figure as a timeline marker. And it's because Monica says she he is her favorite basketball player and she's going to be like him one day. Um, something that... Well, like I said, there were a lot of things I found really interesting. I think the most interesting part of the story that I wished could have been more prominent is Monica's relationship with her mother, played by Alfre Woodard. Who is always excellent as she is here. And the best scene of the film to me is... The, the best scene of the film the to me also with is with those two sort of confronting each other as with Monica as an adult saying, like, you never... Like, you basically never liked me. And then, well, Alfie Woodard starts saying that you know you've always looked down down on me. on me because I'm just a housewife. I thought that was so powerful, mm-hmm. and I I almost wish that that would have been the focus of the movie. Sure, that but, this relationship that I didn't get much. You're from. not not very romantically minded, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a romantic. And I found myself being kind of touched by the sentiment of her trying to win this game against him. Well, after you said it, it. It did make more sense to me, and I did think it was sweet. And then when she realizes she lost, and you see the look in her face, yeah. then I did feel something. So I don't think it was corny. Um, it's just that I thought, you know, w- watching a woman sort of lose sight of her own goals over a man is always frustrating to me. And in this film, I don't think she does that. But I think the fear of, like, that is this character going to go down that road? Like, is she going to become preoccupied with this man? And ultimately, it works out. But I think that's what you know. That's what's so interesting about it is the how women uh, across the board, uh, I think, have to make these sacrifices. And you know, the the penalty they pay is you know she's potentially losing out on you know this love interest because she has to so doggedly pursue her professional dreams and goals uh, that in, in a realm that is looking down on her and demeaning anyway. And I think that, you know, the whole portion of her overseas and she has that uh, dinner with an, an old nemesis, right, and talking about how we're treated like royalty here because they see us over here. They see us as equals, whereas in the U.S. they, they look down on women's sports. And I, I think it, you know, there's so much, it's so rich in all of these subtexts. I, I was pleasantly surprised I would recommend it what would you give this film I'd give it four out of five I would give it three and a half out of five I mean it was developed through Sundance it premiered at Sundance Spike Lee uh, produced it Uh, I really liked the look of it I think the supporting cast is fantastic I mean, there are a lot of people in this yeah, film. Gabby Union's in there. Gabby, uh, you know, I don't. Boris Kojo. Boris Kojo. I don't love Tyra Banks, but you know, she's she, in it. Uh, 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 Regina Hall is. Oh, her. Regina Hall is Monica's sister, who I think is really sweet. Yeah, she is very sweet. Okay. Uh, well, we only have a couple minutes left, but uh, what's coming up this week? I don't even know what this week looks like. Well, we got. Uh, well, I know I'm seeing a James Bond film, and there's Venom, Venom Two, and only you're seeing it though. Yeah. Yeah. 
I can't go because guests aren't allowed. Um, uh, there are a few other things, uh, but yeah. Oh, that I was gonna say. You know that it's interesting how things play out and. Uh, Gina Prince, but you know Gina Prince Bythewood. One of our first date nights was seeing *The Secret Life of Bees*, which was her second film. As a director. Oh, I thought I watched that with students at the school I was working in. I saw that with you. You saw it with me in the. Adina. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of *Aquila and the Bee*. Okay, yeah, no, that's different. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this opened right around all that terrible things happened to Jennifer Hudson's family. Uh, oh shoot! Uh, yeah, that was October of '08. Uh, and then she also did Beyond the Lights, which I really, really liked with Gugu and Batha Ra. I highly recommend that film. And then I really didn't like The Old Guard, her Netflix movie. Which she did that? She did The Old Guard. Oh, Gina, girl. Well, you know, it, it also elevated her status because she's already working on a new, you know, between Love and Basketball and Secret Life of Bees, that's eight years. You know, and also the difficulty with women, particularly black women, getting back-to-back projects off the ground. You know, we still aren't really there yet. Sure. The way that male counterparts historically have done. Uh, so I, something like the old guard, I, I think definitely will elevate her and help her make other projects because she's already working on the Woman King with uh, Viola Davis and John Boyega. Oh. Um, but I, I guess in closing, uh, the the quote that yeah, oh, black you women, only have like a minute. I know black women getting into Criterion, uh, hot on the heels of Love and Basketball, will be becoming Regina King's uh, One Night in Miami, mm-hmm. which it, I believe is worthy of that distinction. But you know, there are some people I want to see in here. Where's Ava DuVernay? Uh, we need to get something in there. I think either of her first two films are worthy, or Selma. Um, but a quote that I thought resonated with the character of Monica in Love and Basketball from Ava DuVernay uh, was, "If your dream is only about you, it's too small." Oh, well, thank you. Don't you think that's fitting? Yeah. Bye.